Okay, guys, we're finally finishing Judges, the excruciating <laughs> book of Judges. <laughs> Pastor Howard is giddy, uh, uh, and I am too, uh, because every confession assurance is just about how we don't have a king and we need Jesus, right? You know, every single time. And uh, so here we go, the end of Judges. Um, and, and as you might expect, it's still no good. <laughs> Judges 20. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mitzpah, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mitzpah should certainly be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left, since they have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble for the Lord at Mitzpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. When they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men and with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and to put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what that you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among them the peoples living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Ramon. So the Benjamites returned at the time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for all the men. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for women who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since the Israelites have taken this this oath. Cursed be anyone who who gives a wife to to a Benjamite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh to the north of Bethel and east of the road that goes... and east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and to the south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join in their dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Do, to a, do us a kindness by helping them, because we did not get wives from them during the war, and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what Benjamin, the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to the inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left the place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. And remember this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what he saw fit. This is the word of the Lord. Let me uh, say that this has been quite a trip through this book. And um, 
quite an ending as well. I have to give you some unfortunate back history um, so that we can all be not, not only on the same page, but, into, uh, but come in today's text and sermon with the same heart. In the city of Gabeah, city of the Benjamites, a, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin, a murderous rape had taken place. One of a woman who was literally thrown into a crowd of vile and hedonistic men who, you know, had their way with the woman and took her life. It was her uncaring husband, a priest, the one who threw her to the crowd to protect himself from the horde who takes her body as a cruel sign and symbol of injustice and dismembers and sends it into 12 pieces to the leaders of Israel. And in doing so, he was demanding justice. So the tribes meet at Mitzpah. That's where you have that Mitzpah term in your text there. To hear this man's story, which is conveniently told in a way so that he escapes justice for his part in throwing her out there and what he did to her body. That the tribe's fighting men gather and they decide to take vengeance and justice in this city Gabeah for what was done. But the Benjamites whose territory this city was in, they weren't having it. They weren't feeling it. And so basically they went to defend uh, against its justice, to defend against the other tribes who wanted to bring justice in this city where there's this men just are running around doing all kind of vile and hedonistic and evil things. And then a war ensued, a civil war within these tribes, which ended with 40,000 Israelites dead and 25,000 Benjamite warriors slain. Gabeah was dealt with. Justice, right? Righteousness, right? Remember, this is Judges. So, of course, not quite. Because after the Israelites finally get the go-ahead from God to destroy this city and the men that defended its immorality and evil, Israel burns the city, killing all of its inhabitants, a la Sodom and Gomorrah, like God did back in Genesis. But the Bible tells us that Israel did not stop there. The text that you read this morning tells us that Israel, uh, that that they turned back to Benjamite territory. And and Benjamites, not just of Gabeah, the city where this bad thing happened, but of every town they killed, not just fighting men, but women and children and animals and burned cities down. The Bible tells us that out of that, only 600 men escaped. And that's because the women were in the towns that were burned and destroyed because the men were out fighting. They not only brought justice on the city of Gabeah, but this Hebrew term, they harimed, they, they utterly destroyed and, 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 and desolated their brothers and sisters of Benjamin. Now, the only modern image that relates, that goes through our mind is the L.A. riots after the Rodney King beating verdicts. How people of the city protested rightly, possibly, but but they turned back. It became violent and senseless and evil and, and looting their own communities, their own people. And like the Israelites here, the cup of justice had overflowed into the realm of vengeance and bloodthirstiness that was more than they should 
have taken. So in the text we read, that's before you in chapter 21 and beyond, we, we find the Israelites some four months later dealing with their regrets of what happened. Dealing with the weight of the justice they were called to. Gathered at Bethel, they, they make a burnt offering for sin and an offering before God of peace. And, and when this is done in assembly, let me tell you, it is done to ask the Lord for help. They were beseeching the Lord, um, the Lord's guidance, because sadly and with much regret, Benjamin is going to be gone as a part of Israel. And they helped to do it, rightly and not so rightly. They acted with God's go-ahead, but we are informed here that before they went to war before Gabeah, they, they made some vows. We don't find out they made these vows until this chapter. They actually made the vows back when the thing happened in chapter 20. But now it's revealed that they made a vow, that like, like you would according to the laws of God with foreign nations, that they would not give their daughters in marriage to a Benjamite again which left 600 Benjamite women, I mean men, which means one day Benjamin would cease to be a tribe in Israel. And the Bible tells us that they wept and they cried to the Lord that, that he had created a gap in Israel, that, that there would be a, a broken circle without the 12th tribe in it. And, and, and here is what we can gather as we read this text. God does not speak. He seems silent. And this is what they did. Remembering yet another vow they made that we didn't know about, that whoever did not send fighting men to help destroy that city, they, you know, they would also be killed with that city. They realized that the city of Jabesh Gilead uh, in, in Gad did not help out. So you know what they did? This assembly in Bethel, they sent 12,000 special ops. They said the best fighters to, to take the city out, but this time to only kill the men and married women. Now, it's interesting how they make this, this decision after they realize, hey, there's only 600. Th- there aren't any women for these 600 Benjamite men. Ah, oh, we've got an idea. Just kill all the men and married women and children, but don't kill any women who were virgins. They could take those spared young women and give them to the remaining Benjamites. Now let me paint a picture here for you. These women who hadn't been with anybody were someone's daughter and sister. These young women, as possibly as young as 14 years old, and, and they experienced their parents and younger brothers and sisters killed, and then they were ripped from their homeland, from their bedrooms, from the playgrounds, and, and taken and stolen away to be given to the 600 Benjamites hiding out in Ramon, who've now come back at request of this peace committee sent by Israel. Now they have a gift, though. 400 ripped away and stolen young women teenagers for 600 surviving Benjamite males. But oh, oh, 400 minus 600 is minus 200. So what do they do? Well, they're on a roll. So why stop here? The elders remember that there's this 
festival in Shiloh. And the way they describe it, say, you know, there's this road going over here and this north of the city. Just the way they describe it, they're not even quite sure where exactly all this is going to happen. You know, you just kind of, it's this scene of of grumpy old men who don't know all the details. They're just, hey boys, let me tell you, if you hide in the bushes over here, I know in this place some girl's going to come out and dancing and you guys just take one. Let me explain this again. These were teenagers who were like dancing together at a wedding. This is innocent and fun. This was not at all sensual. This isn't, oh, I'm dancing, I hope I get a man. No, this is nothing like that. But the Benjamites were told that since the fruit on the vine would be full at this time, to, to hide behind the vines and jump out in each man. And, and so as the young ladies dance around, 200 Benjaminite men did what I would describe as a community-sanctioned kidnapping. Now, the Bible uses the word seized, which should sound familiar, because that's what the priest did when he threw his wife to the lust mob in Gabeah. So there is no arrangement, no okay, no preparation for the parents or family. This is a large-scale kidnapping. This is a large-scale kidnapping, rape, violence, something. This is, you know, there's no value put on these women. There's no dowry. There isn't any, my girl is worth this much. They just run in and take them away. So they carry this, is like a looting sort of carrying. They go back home and the Bible says that the elders would ready themselves with this response. They thought through it well, y'all, to this looting by just telling the fathers, because I I know I'd be mad. Just telling the fathers and brothers of these young ladies, these teenagers, that that they will, that with Israel, they're kind of, all guilty of killing maybe too many women in the bloodbath and it's fair go around now. And, and the fact that they were stolen means, guess what? You're okay with God. You didn't break your vow not to give them to marriage because you didn't give them. They were taken. And this book does something to make us all feel not so good. It ends. It ends. Just like it sort of began. Not just the book, but this episode itself. That there is this degradation in which these insecure, pitiful males, like little boys, put the ones God had called to protect to fix their problems, that they repeated in nature of the offense what they went to war for. They barter and sell off and negotiate their women, their weak, their unfortunate, their responsibilities to fix their guilt. The last verse leaves us with what I would, what I heard a pastor, another pastor refer to as the bass note. Just the end. A disturbing chord. No resolution. Just in those days, Israel had no king. Sorry, young ladies. Sorry, Israel. All the justice you stood for, you went back and did the same thing. Sorry, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The end. 
the end. I'm going to tell you, after reading this text, more than I had any other so far in my study, because I wanted it to end right. I was looking hard for it to end well. My response never changed. It was a mix of sorrow and anger and frustration that the Bible was written this way. And when that happens, all that could come up was like this, mm, this groan, this unspeakable but expressed not rightness. An unsettling of my heart and mind and, and belief even. I, I was talking to Pastor Giorgio this week. And, okay, okay, and this comes from a man and me. I mean, which it isn't all good, but I like roller coasters and thrills and horror movies and all that kind of stuff. I even like Spike Lee's bad, you know, hard ending movies. I'm all right with it. Things don't end right. Yeah, you know, I'm cool with it. I'm postmodern and all that stuff. Judges kick my butt. I, it, it did me in. I, I couldn't sleep thinking, oh, what am I saying? I don't feel right about this. I mean, I was left feeling undone, unmet, unfulfilled, groaning in this almost kind of half-baked melancholy of the lukewarm. I tried to make the thing easier to swallow to make more sense, but Mary Poppins ain't right. A spoonful of sugar don't make this go down any easier. I tried. I tried to add more to this text. Stuff that wasn't there, you know? Tempted to lie to myself and maybe even you about what this means, and it means exactly how it feels. Like a pain and itch under the skin. And so what's the point, man? What's the point? Thanks, God. Thanks a lot. And the point is this, to make you and me and hopefully the readers of this who would have read it kind of looking back in history at a time when there were earthly kings to make us yearn for more than we could ever expect or provide for ourselves. And I want to make it clear here. The problem here is that Israel yearned for redemption, rightness for their guilt, but they were not yearning for a king. They were yearning just to be better. They weren't yearning for a savior or deliverer. And so in the wake of such a dramatic and disgraceful injustice as a rape and dismemberment and ensuing civil war, and its justice joined with an unfortunate bloodthirst of, of revenge, not seeing a king. Remember, there was no king. Not being able to yearn for anything more than to feel and make themselves feel better for self-pity's sake. They made vows they would regret. They dealt justice they could not handle. And they provided a fatal fix for their sorrow and guilt. Everyone just figured out what was best to make it work. There weren't any parameters. There wasn't any hope. There wasn't any promised land anymore. They were in it and they made a mess of it. They just sought to fix it with things like vows. Now, this vow thing is just, we just found out this week, because in chapter 20, it doesn't tell us that they made this vow not to intermarry with the Benjamites. And, and, to, and again, and to put the sword, all who didn't send forces to war from, from their city, Allah Jabesh Gilead gets killed, and they take the virgin girls and, and the whole tribe of Benjamin, so that if you weren't there, they were saying, you didn't support, you're supporting what happened in this city. Now, now this move was pre-God tell us what to do. They just said, oh, let's make a good vow. I'm feeling this thing. Man. And this rash vow making is not new. 
you know, we, we read back about Judge Jephthah some chapters ago did the same sort of thing and his daughter died for the price of his foolish vow. Now, I don't know what happens to us, but you can kind of understand the utter disgust in what happened here. They show up and this is the story. Some woman has been, this has been done to some woman in the town. Some mob, now these are like, let's just face it, this is like the church, right? This is the church you recommend your friends to go to. And in this church, in this supposedly God-centered place, this sort of thing happens. So you can imagine that I would be upset. If I'm like, yeah man, that's a good church to go to. They in our denomination, all that, yeah, they believe in truth, all that, go, go over there. And this sort of thing happens. With tens of thousands of Israelites behind you, you can say some crazy things. Passion gets you going to, to deal with that base note. You know, you can vow to deal with that agitated feeling when things just aren't right. All kind of stuff comes out your mouth. That feeling of this world and what is going on is terrible and bad and ugly and for some scary. And you just want to get it off. You know, it's like a bug. That jumps on you. How you act when a jump bug jumps on you? The motions are understandable. You got a bug on you. Ah, you know, you jump around. But you can't be considered responsible or considerate. I'm sorry if you're standing beside me. If the bug get on you, good for me. <laughs> I remember when a bug used to get on me, I used to run in a crowd of people hoping to jump on somebody else. I used to do it. Oh, rubbing on somebody else. Well, you just want that weight gone. That burden, that fear, this thing that stings or could sting. And we make promises to ourselves and about others and the vow becomes our redeemer. There is no king. It becomes our writer. Not, not necessarily of what is wrong, but of the feeling of wrong. The fear, the passion of what is wrong. We say things like, I'm never going to trust another man again. I'm never going to trust another white person or some other ethnic group. I'm never going to date again or ever again. And, and there's this song, you know, I'll never love like this again, you know, or my kids will not be like me. I refuse for them to be poor or to struggle or not to have the degrees I have. They will not be as uneducated as I am. And we let these vows come out our mouth and we, we think we're holding them lightly. They are revealing our hurt hearts. You know, I'm never going to ever join a church. I made a, you know, I made one a long time ago. I remember thinking to myself, and I even remember mumbling the words, I am never going to let anyone know me fully again. I'm just not going to believe in friendship. And we do these things because the hurt we experience and the dirtiness that we fear will happen, or we just want to avoid, <coughs> excuse me, the bad feeling altogether. Or we can't handle the destruction and pain. Just being here or there in the world make us feel it isn't right. And my words will be my wall now. I'm never going to. And I resolve. And, and all these sort of things that are everything but the word of God. You know, kind of take some words from the word of God. I promise to God. And we, we say these things. And they're a front. They're a, they are frontal assault against all that hurts or all that will hurt or could make you hurt. And, and here is the thing. God never asked you to make that vow. God never asks his people to make promises. Now, a right vow is a promise in light of what God could do. But remember, there is no king. God never asks us to make a vow based on our own ability to keep it. 
to make promises to yourself and others and others that you can't keep and make yourself and your world right. And, and let me tell you, without a king, without a victor, without a protector, without somebody else who can vow and be perfect and actually keep the vow for you, why not vow? There's no king. You got some incredibly evil and dangerous world out there. Why not vow? It's all you got is your word in a world without a king. You see, without a king, even justice itself becomes unbearable. Now, y'all talked about this in some length last week, and I know Pastor Giorgio with justice, I know he did it up, but I want to tell you what Israel is feeling here. In verse 15, it says that they hurt for what God had done. God had made a, a gap in the, in the people of Israel. Now, th- that they were instruments of God's justice, God-given, authorized justice. They were the arm. They were the handiwork of God's justice here to make right something but went wrong, not only against each other but against him. And so that's good. But did you know justice has an aftertaste? Real justice never leaves us merry, but it makes us feel sobered, more alert to the fallenness and brokenness of our world and ourselves. And like Israel, I am not sure we can handle that. I was watching this show on TLC, and I don't always watch these things. Why y'all think I'm lying? I'm never going to watch those again. Oh, so they had this person with this tumor in their face and it was like totally deforming. And apparently when the doctors looked at it, they said it was pressing against the brain. And so eventually this young lady, and I was really into the story. It was really an interesting thing because her brothers and her sisters and her mom were like, oh, don't worry about it. But she had a cousin come in and give the money for her to have the operation. And she was all joyed because the hospital was going to pay for this. You know, she was from a small African village. No money, no husband. Her husband had left her because of the tumor that started out as a pimple. And and so, you know, we're all into it. Yes, she's going to, everyone's excited. And when they removed the tumor, she looked in the mirror and she was depressed because there was a scar. The deadly thing was gone, but it left her with a face that just wasn't the same before the tumor was removed. Justice is good, but on us personally and on society, it leaves a scar that is hard for us to live with. Unless someone else is saying something to us, you're okay. You look all right. And so when I'm looking at this story, eventually it's terrible how it ends. She doesn't live. We don't know why. They just said she didn't live much longer. But it ended with this uncertainty. And people in her village were like, should have left the tumor in. Justice doesn't feel good. Feels right but it doesn't feel good. I remember I was part of, in, in Presbytery, sometimes you called to talk in cases. And I had to testify in a case against 
a mentor of mine. And I was, it felt good. Some of us got together like, man, this has got to change. This is killing the church. This blah, 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 blah. And we went through and it was, you know, it felt like a burden was lifted. And I thought about the church is going to get healthier and all this kind of thing. And then afterwards, the tears in that man's face, the brokenness in his wife's face, the, 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 the church itself looked like, what are we going to do? Afraid. And just in that moment, I hated what I had done. Didn't feel good. The aftertaste of justice. Somebody, brother or father, is going to be in jail. Somebody died today. And yeah, they maybe, you know, justice according to laws, it needed to happen, but it doesn't feel great. Let me say this. Living in the tension is impossible. If, like Israel, you have no king, justice starts not to be right. Because now we live in a world where, okay, none of us are pure. You start to think stuff like this. None of us are pure or good enough to really judge one another. And, and if there isn't a righteous king with the kingdom of laws that demand justice over our own view of it, no way. No more right and wrong. No more legal system. I'm, or, you know, I'm not going to say anything. I I don't want to tell. I don't want to confront. No more of this feeling. No more of that mess, the base note, that sorrow. We're just, if the, the aftertaste, we can't deal with it. So we stay quiet. Or we do something else. Israel is sorrowful because they couldn't handle being in the place of executor of judgment. And we see it in the fact that they don't just destroy the city in which it happened like Sodom and Gomorrah, more congruent, if you will, to God's way. They got bloodthirsty and went back and destroyed all the cities. They, 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 they utterly put every living thing down and they burned up all the resources, all the crops, all the buildings. And again, again, you make you think of this L.A. riots thing. Not only does justice leave an aftertaste, it creates this hunger. Because justice is never enough on this side of heaven. This earthly justice we bring is never enough to take all the guilt away, the guilt feelings that damage it is never, that is done to our world and our psyche. And here is the hard part. It never leaves us satisfied. You can kind of get this feeling when things go wrong and that in some way we need to burn it all down. If something happens wrong, you're like, let's just tear it down. Let's just blow it up. Let's just put it to the sword because we can't live in the tension of the not quite or almost or pretty good. I want us to think of the most horrible thing that's happened to us. Donnie, you by others. Now, whatever punishment or judgment you could imagine, can never take that feeling completely away. You might think, maybe, but from what we read in Scripture, it will not go away because the sin damage done to you or to this world will not completely go away. And you know what is to follow? Yes, you do. Justice is now the enemy, and vengeance is our new friend. We will resort to hatred. 
The same hatred that got us here in this situation to counter it like they did when they saw Gabriel, when they saw all that was going on. They just wanted to kill every Benjamite. This is terrible. We have no choice but to resort to more killing, more blind destruction, more self-hatred, more vows, more lying, more deception to ironically fix what can't be made perfect. Sometimes my sons will be building something, or, you know, I'm like, hey, that looks pretty good. No, it isn't. This is sticking off the edge. And they just throw the whole thing down. Some of us have killed men in our minds and hearts. No such thing as a good and trustworthy man. Now you hate. Some of us have blown up the Bible. Again, it was used wrongly. No trustworthy spiritual thing. I hate it. I take what I want. I loot and steal what I must to make things right. Some of us shoplift truth out of the context of church community to fix my unsettling feelings of hurt that I've experienced. We have hated our parents or anything that is daddy-ish or mama-ish. Now, no way we are going to get married or have children or put ourselves in this position. You just want to blow it all up. You want to make it all bad. You know, and like Israel, the embers of the burnt offering and peace offering are not enough to take away our feelings. Somebody is going to have to die. Something going to have to get stolen or looted because I can't settle to live in the middle. It's interesting about both of these these stories, the Virginia Tech shootings and, and, and the Columbine thing is there's this undercurrent story of someone being bullied or treated badly outside a community that does not justify the ends. Don't hear me say that. But there's just something that without a king, someone who's going to take up your cause when things go round, wrong about you, around you, you just got to make it right. Some of us have become terrorist, if you will, of our ability to love or be loved. Because reconciliation that happens on this side of heaven, it isn't good enough. It's the way to go because justice will become an enemy or worse, a tantalizing, a torturous so-called ally. Yeah, let's do justice. Let's just, you know, let's go through the process. You know, if, if someone's treating you wrong in this church, just go talk to them, number one. And then if they don't listen, bring somebody else. And if they don't listen, talk to the elders. Man, forget all that. Let's just blow it up. I hate church. I'm done. Jesus and God and everything. And we begin and end with no justice, no settling hope or words. We are left with this terrible, terrorist-making, terrorizing dilemma like Israel. Without a king, we all do what is right in our own eyes, and ironically, it does not make right. It bleeds us and others of righteousness. So what do we do? Let me suggest that we do exactly, or be encouraged to do exactly, how this book has left you feeling. Let's be freed to groan. Not to feel sorry for ourselves. Not to pity our condition. Not to roll in the mud and muck of whatever. I'm not asking us to go, oh, well, 
Let's wear black and go underground golf. I mean, or, or all is shot to hell and this is the revealing hope. Nothing works. Nothing helps. Mean. It can be fixed. So just, let's just be these mean postmodern Christians. I'm not asking for that. No, I want you to be able to do what would have saved Israel. Which would have been a sign that Israel have hope, that she had redemption in the king, which she didn't see or believe she had. God has given us a gift in the in-between. He has given us the groan. It is an unspeakable prayer and posture of hope when there are no words of vow or actions of justice that can comfort. It is groaning with hope in a place, in a world, in a heart that is not perfect. Yeah, it is true. Daddy never really approved of you or accepted you. You could have never been enough. Yes, it is true you were literally left to be seized by an ambitious lifestyle, a lonely existence, an addiction left that is by parents or friends or a church or organization that sacrificed you for their foolish vows. Uh, My kid will be more than I was or or they will not make the same mistakes or they will be the generation that makes more money or finds a cure or something. And you and I, many of us were pushed into a world for its grievous taking. It's true. That a whole world turned their heads in your despair. It is true that we are now in many ways over the edge in our pursuit to make things right. We are all in some way filled with bitterness and hatred and violence. And it seems true that God is silent. He's left no heavenly drug to make the pain completely go away. But it is not true that God is doing or has done nothing for your or my redemption. This whole book is God's words for his people for all ages. Even the next age in which there will be a king. If these are God's words and this is God's expression to us, his people about us, then God is not silent, but he is groaning like we are for us. You see, grace, the stuff that reminds us of God's love in the midst of pain and suffering is God groaning. And so God is not calling us, but but giving us the grace, the the freedom, the the right to groan in our sin, to, to groan for the fall, to groan for the messed up nature of things, to groan and not try to fix it with our words or our own sense of justice or our own works of writing it and, and ourselves, but to groan for the redemption that he is eager and able to give us. See, the Israelites were called to do just that. To groan up to their God for all that had happened to Gabeah. To groan because things were messed up. To groan for what their sin meant and its effect on their brothers Benjamin and their women and their community. And as they gathered to hear and experience God's groan for them. Let me tell you, the altar... And the sacrifices and the Ark of the Covenant said it groaned from heaven that what? God will stay with his people in a halfway place. That God will wait with his people forever in this almost place. That God will not leave his people until they see and know and experience the king of glory and his kingdom. But a groan requires a king. Because without a king, there is, a, there is no hope. 
but a king gives a hope of real love and justice and peace and glory on earth, but one that only a perfect heavenly king will with a heavenly and perfect kingdom can bring. Now, what am I saying? Groaning. That is longing for more in the hunger of not enough or not right enough is a gift of hope, a gift, a freedom to weep forward, to mourn forward. It's a redemptive action because it says that there is someone or something more to long, long for. Not just to hurt from, but to hope for. The groaning says, yes, we are caught in between. But in between in light of a king means that there is a life with the redeemer who has a kingdom of life. One that we can groan up to and for. Because we believe that we have a king. That here's our prayers And without hope and anything else alone can save us. Who groans for us as he feels our discontent and sin and brokenness better than we do. Feeling what we do. And so we groan for the not yet but coming. We groan that things not only must be better somehow. And that king in someone is Jesus. The Bible says he is the king of glory and justice that sinners in a sinful world that Israel didn't see. He is the king and is there and has power here to whom we all can belong to now and have hope yet to be fully his. This week we had a fast on Thursday. You know, Something about that hunger. It's not hunger like we're going to die, hunger. Hunger like, Lord, you're there. And you're a good and glorious and gracious and loving king. And so, Lord, you've given us the gift to hunger and thirst for more than we can provide in our own actions and for ourselves. You see, this was read by people who had an earthly king. They looked back on judges and they thought, man, the same thing's happening in our community, even with this earthly king. And so it was a, it was a call to look at the earthly king and say, man, there's a heavenly king. We, we need more. Lord God of Israel, king of kings, Lord of lords, we groan, we yearn, we have unspeakable words, the feeling we have of, of being caught in between, of things not being right, but of the hope of you coming and doing it and making it right. To Lord, Savior, King, Jesus. All grown up for his care. Don't vow what you could or shouldn't keep. Grown up. Don't, don't do, don't take justice into your own hands and hearts. Grown up for his blood as a Savior alone can justify us. Don't act as messy for and against the world's mess. Grown up to God. Oh, Lord. It just ain't right. And I can't make it right. But I groan because I know you can.
Be freed by him who is the king. For those of us caught in the in-between, the not quite, not yet just world and right world, let us have a vision of the king of righteousness, the prince of peace, the Lord of lords, whose vow says, I am returning and behold, I am making and will make all things right. Grown in that and for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the end of the matter is ultimately your care for us your love for sinners in a sinful world. Free us to hunger, to groan as people caught in a world that ain't right and yet to be made right. Let us groan in the way this book ends, in the way our lives seem to end. Let us groan with a hope In you, Lord Jesus, the one who justifies and saves and delivers us. Help us go to you with unspeakable words, just a bad feeling, an unmet need feeling, Lord. Help us go to you, but give us hope as we look up to groan, to hurt for hope, to long for more because of Jesus. Free us to this reality of your grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.